If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. It's a love story. It's a family story. It's a story of lavish parties and lively conversation. It's the story of a haven for painters, poets, and intellectuals. A story of steamer crossings and priceless works of art. Of innovation and obsession. Of endless gardens, lush forests, and rolling meadows. It's a story of 1,000 men and the six years they spent creating America's largest home with 250 magnificent rooms, each with its own stories to tell. But all this can't even begin to tell the full story of Biltmore. Come walk in the footsteps of the Vanderbilt family and discover something magnificent around every corner, from the most minute detail to larger-than-life grandeur. Because as wondrous as the story of Biltmore may be, it can never be complete without you. Plan your stay at Biltmore.com. Well, I'm pleased to begin the Let's Go Eat show again for the first time in a long time. We've been kind of uh, taking a little break, but here we're back with the show, and we're recording it live at a great place in downtown Salt Lake City called The Daily, 222 South Main Street. Uh, it's, a, it's a, I don't know how to describe it. It's a pretty casual place. It's open for breakfast and lunch, and then uh, on Saturdays and Sundays for brunch from uh, sometime to sometime. You can go to thedaily.com and find out. They have an interesting and an eclectic menu and I should have asked our guest who is Mark Haley Mark if he wanted anything to eat do you want anything to eat Mark oh I'm okay for a minute let's uh, do the show and then we'll talk about lunch. <laughs> all right, all so, right we'll do that. And as a producer I should have had everything ready the waters the levels and uh, so I apologize yeah there, should have, there, all right. there would have been waters out here I, there would have been a fire extinguisher close by <laughs> just in case that's, uh, that's see now that's a joke that you'll get in a minute and you'll think God Bill you're in, that's in really poor taste Oh, it's totally fine. Fire jokes are funny. <laughs> but, I, but I've met Mark on several occasions now and knew that he would not take it amiss. Uh, Mark, uh, I, I guess we're interviewing you because, uh, well, because you, you said, would you like to hear my story? Uh, and I said, sure. And I thought, well, you could be on our show, the Radio From Hell show. But then I thought, you know, that's not long enough to really do it justice. So, so then I thought, well, let's get the podcast going again. And that's a good place for the story. Uh, Mark is, when he first walked up to me, I think I was doing a remote somewhere. Do you remember where that was? Or, uh, there was the one that was downtown at the phone store, but I think it was actually before that was the first time we met. I might have been at one of your Honda yeah, dealership. Yeah, probably. Ones. So he comes walking up to me, and and he's, uh, when you first see Mark, he's he's obviously been burned. Uh, and he came up and was as friendly as hell and started talking to me and said, hi, I've been wanting to meet you. I listened to your show. And uh, uh, and we started chatting about, and I'm a, just sort of a naturally curious person, and when I saw that you were not hesitant at all to talk about, you know, it's funny, you meet people sometimes, and we'll have some pictures that we'll, we'll put up on the website just so you can see Mark. He, I, he doesn't mind, I'm sure. Not a bit. Uh, sometimes when you meet people and they have some scarring or a physical 
deformity, you you, you you sort of are like, okay, do I mention this or what? Do, and you must encounter that all the time. Pretty often, yeah. People, how often do people just not say anything and just just go on about their business and you go on about your their business? Well, I suspect, I mean, I certainly don't know what's going on in their heads when I see people, but you know, I go to the grocery store, I shop at Costco, I just, I just live my life, mm-hmm. and you see people, you meet people, and everybody is friendly and cordial and, and whatnot, so it's hard to know exactly what they're thinking. When they get but, to know you a little bit, do, do they bring up the, the fact that you've been burned, or do you? Uh, I let them. Do you let them do it? Yeah, it's because uh, I know that I'm totally comfortable talking about it, but I don't know if they're going to be comfortable listening to it, because it's kind of a lot, mm-hmm. and so uh, if they're curious, then I'm happy to talk with them about it. That's interesting. It, but I don't force it on anyone. I'm going to turn that microphone just oh, yeah. so you talk right in. All right, thank you. So, so you know, it's, it reminds me of... Uh Many years ago, when I was a student at Penn State University, uh, I would hitchhike to class uh, on most mornings, uh, uh, and I uh, every once in a while, maybe once a week, I would get picked up by this guy who was driving a really nice sports car, and he was horribly scarred from burns. Um, I mean, he, uh, you look normal in comparison to... to uh, and I never, ever dared ask him about it. And he was friendly, and he'd say, "Oh, it's you again. Hop in, have a ride. You know, mm-hmm. o- okay, you know." And and we'd go, we'd. I mean, he was Phantom of the Opera burned. You know, right? Um, and his hands, and he usually wore. He was all covered up mostly, but obviously. And I was always uh, hesitant to ask him about it. But with you, I uh, I don't know. I think I asked you about it right away. And I get that a lot, which is completely fine. As I said, I'm comfortable talking about it. I, a little bit of a backstory, I volunteer at the rehab unit that I was a patient at, and I'm there most every Sunday. And because of that, in that situation, I tell this story a couple of times Mm -hmm. every Sunday when Mm -hmm. I meet new patients. It's completely fine. You deal with kids? Uh, They don't, I haven't. Not in the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. They don't haven't had any pediatric mm-hmm. patients there that I've met yet. But I will say just when I'm out and about at the grocery store or whatever, it's generally children that will bring it up first. They mm-hmm. have no filter. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, It's uh, to me, I mean, uh, kids kids who are, uh, have had... I just did a, a fundraiser, uh, just emceed a fun, fundraiser for the burn unit at the University of Utah. And uh, there were uh, kids there who were burn victims and it was a fundraiser for the burn camp that they do and everything and they were all pretty willing to talk about what had happened to them if you wanted to know uh, uh, but I but they all said to, it's it's really hard when you're a kid and a, and a burn victim to you know once you get over the the pain of the the ordeal and all of that it's just it's hard to deal with because you look different than other people certainly yeah yeah so so mark anyway I started talking to mark and I said so what happened and it's quite a story, and that's where we want to go with this right now. And then we'll go into some of the specifics about your your new bionic hand and stuff like that. But uh, so so just tell the story of uh, who Mark Haley is and who who he was and who he is now and how all this happened. Well, uh, it's interesting you phrase it that way because when people ask me what happened, my standard smartass answer to that is that's a lot of years to cover. Should I start with my childhood? <laughs> yeah, because you know it's not just one event that goes into making a person 
So I, I want to, uh, I don't want to be known as the guy that talks about just this one thing just because And that's obvious. why, yeah, and that's what I'm asking you because you have a, fa- I mean, what led to this is fascinating. Yes. What led to your accident is fascinating. And so uh, you're, you're a risk taker, apparently. In some ways, yes. Uh, were, were you like that as a kid? Uh, I liked riding my bike off-road. I liked, I've always liked fast cars. I've liked, I mean, I, I don't have any desire to jump out of a perfectly good airplane, mm-hmm. but uh, in, if it's got wheels and a way to steer it, I'm there. You like fast cars, and uh, that leads into the story. So when did, when did you have your first car race, by the way? Uh, do I dare say? Uh, Sure you I, do. Yeah. It's just us three. It's no one else us. will hear no this. One else, yeah. yeah. No one else listens Nobody's to Nobody's in the restaurant. Right. <laughs> you understand. No. Uh, it was... <sighs> All right. I'll admit it here. When I, you know, I got my license when I was 16, like most kids mm-hmm. do, and mm-hmm. I had lost it by the time I was 17 because I couldn't afford the insurance no rates for all the tickets that I had gotten. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, it started early. You, it le- uh, just a genuine lead foot, as they say. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Why? It's fun. <laughs> I, it's, it's scary. I, see, oh, I was never fun. much of a... I mean, I did some stupid things in cars in my life. Oh, but, everybody does. Yeah, sure. But, but I mean, ultimately... Going 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. I don't do it now. I mean, I'll, if I have a, I have a fairly nice car, I'll go 80 where it's posted 80, but I don't like it much, and mm-hmm. I don't like it much faster than that. But you... I drive 80 kind of a lot. <laughs> Still. Still. Yeah. Uh, where, it, where did you grow up then? Where were I, you in, taking... Uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, I Las was born Vegas. there. Okay. And I lived there until I was about 16 and a half, 17. Then I moved up to the Bountiful area. Mm. So the Vegas police knew who you were by name, I'm sure. Uh, I, perhaps. I mean, I never asked them. The Bountiful cops certainly did. So you lost your license by the time you were 17. You got it back. Yeah. Were you, were you more careful after that? Yes, I was much more cognizant about where I was and what I was doing at the time. I mean, there's certainly a time and a place for that sort of activity at the racetrack. Street, not, street racing. I am is, anti-street racing. Yeah. I've, you know, yeah. I see those shows, especially on Discovery Channel, that glorify that sort of thing, and it just, I know mm-hmm. I am absolutely against that. Mm-hmm. There's a time and a place for it. Well, I, I remember growing up, there were uh, young adult books, and a lot of them had to do with, you know, like one of them was called Street Rod or something like that. And, I've, and you know, yeah, these, I've read those books. Yeah. And these drag racing books where the where, you know, the high school kids are dra- and then somebody gets killed, you mm-hmm. know, and every time. Yeah. Every time. Or, you know, the song, where, oh, where can my baby be? Uh-huh. You know, the Lord took her away from me. Yeah, because they were drag racing, and uh, it, it was a cautionary tale. Don't, and I guess I took it to heart. I didn't you drag race. You must have. I didn't. Yeah. It yeah. took me a long time to learn it. So when did you start racing on tracks, and how did that all come about? Uh, I've been a spectator for a long time. I've loved drag racing and and uh, you know any kind of auto racing. But uh, about 15 or so years ago, I had a, a little Chevy S10 truck with a... Uh, that I had put a small block Chevy engine in a V8 engine, and it was it ran pretty good. It was okay, and it was a lot of fun, and I had a good time with it. You like working on them too, oh, yeah. and tinkering oh, yeah. I, with I them. I grew up doing that. Yeah. When I was a kid, my dad had a '36 Willys in the garage. When I was a teenager, he bought a '40 Dodge sedan for a family car. 50 Chevy, 55 Chevy. We had all kinds of old cars mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. and so I love working on them. They're fun, and uh, but I never really had anything really well. 
I had my very first car was a uh, 55 Volkswagen Beetle and I had a rather large engine in it and I got really good at putting transmissions in that car because I kept breaking them <laughs> but uh, and that car it was good for what it was but it was no V8 American mm. muscle car so you, so you get this 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 Chevy S10 pickup truck and it's mm-hmm. really and you decide you're going to race it oh yeah well I knew from the beginning I was going to race it and so I took a week off of work and changed the engine in it and it ran pretty good and it was fun and I'd been out at Rocky Mountain Raceway several times with it but uh, it got to a point where I had there was something wrong with the engine it didn't have any oil pressure it had to come out and get rebuilt and I had the thought I like the truck but I don't love the truck Mm. if I'm going to spend this kind of time and money on the engine I'm going to put it into something that I love and I'd been dreaming about this 26 Ford Roadster since I was high school I had built it in my head several times over a 26 Ford Roadster now tell me if I if I'm if I'm seeing this in my head right it's a coupe uh, it's it's actually a roadster. It does not have a top or roll up windows. Oh, okay. It so only has a windshield. That's why it's not a coupe, but it's a two seater. Yeah, it is a two seater. It's a two seater, and it's kind of rounded. Yeah, it's got some rounded edges yeah. on it. And the reason that I liked that particular body style, the uh, 32 or 34 Ford oh, yeah, is much more common, but the uh, right behind the seat, it's called the tulip panel. It, it uh, curves down a little before it blends into the trunk, and I've just always really loved that shape on a 26 27 roadster so that's the body style that i always envision building yeah and so so you start uh, racing that and build it up and racing yeah that? so it was a bare fiberglass body a reproduction body when i got it and it took me five years i built the frame myself i rebuilt the engine like i it needed to be uh sourced all the parts it had some reproduction parts some original had some parts i had laying around that i restored and put on the car and it was about from the time that i got the body to the time that it ran under its own power for the first time was about five years so when you start racing cars like that and you go out to you go out to the rocky mountain raceway and Mm -hmm. uh what what sort of racing is it is it is it uh, oval track racing no it's drag racing it's all drag quarter mile that's the kind i like and um yeah so you just stomp on it and go and yep um, and it's you're in an amateur class? Yes, it was a street car. It wasn't a race car. It was just a hot street car. Mm-hmm. And several years ago, they had an event that they called the Graffiti Drags, which was for old old cars like mine, just street cars. And they ran it an eighth mile, so only half the track. So you're that way the speeds weren't so great. Oh, I see. And that way you didn't have to have as much safety equipment as the full-on race mm-hmm. cars. And I ran that for a little while, and it was fun, but the car wasn't quick enough. Mm-hmm. And I when I built the car, I had I had dreamed from the beginning that I wanted to run out on the salt flats, and in oh, order really? to run in the class that I was intending, the car had to have a four-point roll cage. And so I had, when I built the frame, I built it with the mounts in it with the intent of building this roll cage. Mm-hmm. And then within a couple of few years later after that, I got the, uh, there was a guy in town in the Draper area somewhere that uh, I had contacted him about bending the tubing to my specifications. The roll cage is essentially a protective thing that a goes up over the- protective cage around the driver. Yeah, around you, yeah. So it fit, I designed it to fit the car with me in it and a special seat that I had 
had because in, for street driving it just had a bench seat so for racing I took the bench seat out put the bucket seat mm-hmm. in and then and put the uh, roll cage in that I fabricated around it and because of that safety factor I could now run a full length course I could run out on the salt flats that's a quarter mile is quarter a full mile. length yep um, this is still safer than drag ra- dragsters the, the rail cars right this oh is- those cars are actually really safe oh I are mean, they oh yeah there's uh, I mean the horrific wrecks that you see on TV and whatnot those guys walk away from that and it took I mean the rule book is written in blood so they say you know there were a lot of injuries and, and even fatalities mm-hmm. over the years that go into this, making those rules into what they are today and that's why the sanctioning bodies are so strict on enforcing those rules because your safety is and fuel was a big problem they used to use more dangerous fuel yeah there well for a while the NHRA actually banned nitromethane and all of the top cars ran on gas but then as as the drivers and mechanics got better at using it and they pressured the NHRA into allowing them to use it again, now nitromethane is what uh, all that, of the top guys run. That's, by the way, the National Hot Rod Association. Yes, correct. I, Thank I, you for I, that. I, uh, now, so... Um, so you get you're you're doing all these races and you're are you pretty good? You win? Uh, I ran I ran a few events, but I really like to run the uh, test and tune sessions, which are just time trials. So I'm not actually racing against another person. I'm just racing the clock mm-hmm. to see if I can improve my myself in, in my driving, mm-hmm. see if I can get the car faster. So a quarter yeah. of a mile. What's the f- best speed you ever did? At the uh, best that I ever ran out at Rocky Mountain Raceways was 11 and a quarter at 120 miles an hour. Now, for comparison's sake, a brand new Mustang or Camaro off the showroom floor, that's about a 13-second car. And if you've got a 12-second streetcar, that's a pretty fast car. Yeah, I uh, was out at Rocky Mountain Raceway, and they had a Mustang. And they said, you can go do it if you want. You can drive it yourself. And I said, no, I don't really, no. Not interested. No, I'll, I'll ride. And so, uh, what's his name, Mike? Mike, the race director out there. Yes, uh, I don't remember the last name, but yes, uh, he uh, he said, "Okay, I'll, t- I'll t-, and he put me in that car with him and did the quarter mile and just stomped on it. Yeah, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't even want to ride in it. I mean, it's just like, what? Yeah. So that ride that you went, do you recall what the what your elapsed time was oh, on I that? Oh, I think it was it was probably thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, or- and that felt fast to you. Oh. So imagine doing that. Three seconds quicker. Mm, yeah, no. Although I've heard, I think it was Danny Sullivan once said that you know, so he's racing Indy cars and going 180, 200 miles an hour right. in Indy cars, and uh, and uh, some interviewer said to him, you know, how can you see anything? Or, you know, and he said, oh, believe me, you're going around that track and you're just going around and around, and everything kind of slows down. And I could see my girlfriend sitting in the stands, mm-hmm. and I knew where she was sitting, and every time I'd go by. I could see who she was sitting with, and you know, he said it's just things. You just things slow down somehow, and and you don't feel like you're going that fast anymore. Is that yeah. does that happen to you? Uh, with circle track racing, you're at that speed for such a consistent time, a long time, that that just becomes normal. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel, and not I don't have a lot of seat time in a circle track car, so it's not a fair comparison. But I would think that uh, drag racing, it's such an acceleration, such a g-force, and last for such a short amount of time that uh, you, you really yeah. feel it. Yeah. You really feel it. Well, I sure did. So anyway, let's get to the, let's get to the meat of this. All right. You're, you're, you're racing in Arizona, as I recall. Yes, 
So the backstory of that is Rocky Mountain Raceways in 2017 had announced that 2018 was going to be their last season. And I wanted to participate in every event that I could, every mm-hmm. time trial, every you know, a few races. It would be fun just to be out there as often as I could for their last season. And I knew that the car needed some improvements. I put new head gaskets on it, new seals in the supercharger, went through the carburetor. Just, I really wanted to make this as good as it could be. I really, really wanted to be a 10 second ride. And so uh, I had done all this work on it and I took the car out to a road near my house that I knew was wide and straight and not many people were on. And I did a little clandestine uh, acceleration test and the car ran good. In fact, she did something that she had never done before. She startled me. The uh, 1-2 shift had always been you know, pretty impressive, but the 2-3 shift at 60 miles an hour, it broke the rear tires loose. So I knew that if I had some good traction with the, my racing slicks... You're crazy. Oh, so fun. Yeah. But uh, I knew that I could hit that 10-second mm-hmm. ride. So I uh, hitched up the car. And, you know, I, I didn't want to drive it that far in January through Utah. No top or no heater or anything. So uh, I hooked it up to my truck to tow it down to Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to use this event as a testing session to see if I had done any good, have some fun. A buddy of mine went down with me in his Mustang. And we were just going to have a fun car weekend together. Mm-hmm. And it did not turn out the way I expected. No. And now, I've seen the video. Yes. Uh, can you... You only know what happened because you've seen the video. Uh, yeah, I was there. Uh, I what? So, the video that Bill's talking about, there was the guy in the staging lane right behind me had his dash camera going in anticipation of his run. And so, he captured my run on his camera. Now, the... The short of it is a front tire blew out at the top end of the racetrack. I was going pretty fast. There's not a lot of room or a lot of time to recover. So the wreck on his camera, it happens pretty far down the frame. Yeah. It's hard to see, but uh, it's it's visible. So, you can see a fireball, yeah. essentially. So the part in the video that you see that I remember, I remember being at the starting line. I remember the, the Christmas tree. That's the starting lights mm-hmm. at the drag strip. They counted down. Light goes green. I take off. I accelerate. I hit second gear. I accelerate some more. And then I woke up later. <laughs> I do not remember the wreck. A long time uh, later. Yeah. I don't remember the wreck. I don't remember the fire. I don't remember being pulled out of the car. All of that is a plank. What What have people told you about it? So what I know from what I've seen in the video and what people have told me is, so the front tire blows out, car takes a hard right turn. You don't remember that. And I don't remember that. But the video shows the car takes a hard right turn into the wall, hits that wall. Uh, it bounces off that wall, goes across the racetrack trips the timing light in the other guy's lane that's how far down the track I was hit that wall and my guess is that impact it twisted the frame away from the engine and it pulled the fuel line off of the fuel pump so now there's open gas the car's mangled enough that it's scraping on the ground sparks yeah there's a thing in automotive theory called a scrub line where if you imagine all four tires being flat does the car scrape mine didn't but it was so mangled from the wreck that it must have so the sparks coming off, ignited the fuel, started a fire. I'm unconscious. I can't get myself out. And the car comes to a rest against the right side wall again. And just sits there and burns until... Why are you still alive? There. That is a fantastic question. The doctors in Arizona asked that several times. 
I, uh, I guess because I you're just in, refused you're, to you're die. There, but you're in there. You're burning. Why didn't you die in the car? I wish you I could just tell don't you. Know. I, I don't know because I'm too stubborn to die. And the people who pulled you out of there must have been just horrified. It's interesting you bring that up. Just last night, I was contacted by one of the fellows at the... Uh, uh, who, who was one of the guys who got out the fire and got me out. And that was the first time that I've heard from anybody from the Tucson racetrack. And uh, he was concerned about, you know, how are you doing? He f- actually followed the story of my recovery through Facebook. And we can talk about that in a little bit too. So he knew about my condition and he knew that I was getting better, but he wanted to hear me say it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and he had mentioned that it, it was harrowing for him and his crew getting that car out, mm-hmm. seeing me, he said he's been in the Navy 10 years and worked at the racetrack part-time for a long time and had never seen anything that bad. I, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, I can't quite fathom, you know, what it would be. It, but what's interesting to me is you don't remember any of this. I mean, as far as you're concerned, you, you woke up and you, you told me you woke up how many months later? Six months later. The doctors kept me sedated for six months. Um, And you said you weren't really in that great a pain when you woke up. No, no pain. Astonishing. Yeah. It is. That is, to me, astonishing. Now, I would assume you've had pain going through rehab and stuff like that. uh, Discomfort. But, uh, no, I... So, the worst of the burns, so I'm told, because I don't remember it, is the debris where they scrub the dead skin off of you yeah. to get down to bare muscle and harvest the skin grafts and reinstall those and let them heal. I don't remember any of that. Uh, that's pretty. Is that kind of standard procedure now for burn? Uh, possibly. I suspect it has something to do with the severity of the burn. I've heard of other people that were awake for that whole yeah, I have process, well. but their burns were not as severe as mine. So, so you end up in in t- describe your condition now to people if you can. All right. So, uh, the part that I read about in the uh, report from the hospital, I suffered 10% was second degree burns and 45% third degree burns. And uh, the the second degree healed up on their own. The doctors didn't intervene, but uh, my entire right arm from my palm to my shoulder is all skin grafts. Both legs from ankle to crotch are, are grafted. The backside of my left arm, the back of my neck, and a little bit on my face. Uh, I was wearing a helmet, but the fire or the visor popped off in the impact, so the fire got to my mm. face around my nose and eyes area, and that not, part had to be grafted. Not terrible, though. Not terrible. Yeah. If my head looked like my helmet, <laughs> we wouldn't be having this mm. conversation. You ever see, you know who Nicky Lauda is? Who he just died? Nicky Lauda. He was a uh, Formula One driver. Uh, I don't know that. Name. Well, he's a fa- famous Formula One driver, and he just died last week. Okay. He was in a he was and he was a great that movie Drive that Ron Howard. Oh yes. He was one of those two guys, Nicky okay. Lauda and uh, James, James Hunt. James Hunt was the other one. But Nicky Lauda, when he was a handsome young man, was involved in a fiery crash in a Formula One race and looked pretty much like the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. After he survived, people didn't... He was burned 90% of his body. Wow. People said he would never survive. He did survive, uh, went back into racing, uh, but did look like the Phantom of the Opera until he got to be an old man. I saw a picture of him just, you know, he was still in racing, uh, working with Mercedes-Benz cars or something like that. All right. And it's uh, still very much involved on those, you know, on the sidelines of racing. But as he got to be an old man, you couldn't tell that he had 
burn scars on his face anymore. It was kind of fascinating. I hadn't seen him for a picture of him for years. I met a man not long after I got out of the hospital who was also in a drag racing wreck and fire 20 years ago. And 20 years later, when I met him, he's got a little bit of a scar on his forehead. Aside from that, you would never, mm. never know. Never and your, your scars are going to improve as time goes by. I, I mean, suspect. It will yes. happen. Um, and, and, uh, but tell people now about, so you lost your uh, hand. Yes. Uh, both hands. Yes. Um, you have a hook on one, but now you've got this snazzy, bi- what is this? It's a bionic hand. All right. I'll, I'll back up just a little bit and explain the rest of that. Okay. So in the fire, my fingers were so badly damaged. Now, let me back up even more. The car was not fast enough to require a fire suit, so I didn't have one. That's probably the uh, reason why all of this happened. Mm. And I don't know if a fire suit would have saved me completely when I was exposed that long, but it certainly could have helped. So I lost all of my fingers due to the fire. They were too badly damaged. I lost my left palm in the hospital later to necro. It had a blood flow problem Mm -hmm. and it just died. And uh, then I also had an infection in a wound on my right foot. So my right pinky metatarsal and pinky toe are gone Mm -hmm. due to that infection. So between the amputations and the uh, skin grafts and the muscle damage in my legs, it's it's kind of a lot. Yeah, I mean you you have a, a noticeable limp, uh, and then not the use of your but you your your well no fingers. I mean no fingers. That's a lot to go through, but so you got the hook. Yes. For, and uh, that served you. Oh, I'd be almost helpless without it. Yeah. I think. So the uh, we, I started talking with a prosthetist while I was still in the uh, LTAC unit after I got out of the burn center, but went to LTAC and I was there for two months before I went to rehab. And uh, while I was in that LTAC unit, I was talking with the prosthetist about options and whatnot, and. Uh, we came up with a game plan, and then by the time I got to the rehab unit, we had the process far enough along that he had made me a temporary piece. Uh, there were some used parts he had laying around the office, and he... Some used parts. Yeah. Really, and yeah. I don't know where they came from. I mean, who trades in a used prosthetic? But uh, And then he had made the socket out of the same kind of fiberglass that they make casts out of. And so he just threw this thing together in 40 minutes, quick and dirty are his words. And I, it's the only thing, not the only thing, I have my teeth, but it's really the only thing that I have to grab with. So I use it for dressing, I use it for hygiene, I use it yeah. every day. And uh, I've had it for six months now. And later this week, tomorrow in fact, I'm scheduled to go get my final piece. The piece that I have, it was made when my arm was still pretty swollen. And so it's really loose now and it's pretty beat up and it's uh, because of its fiberglass nature, it's, I can't really clean it, so yeah. it's not hygienic. So, so and that's this piece? That's the piece that's sitting right here uh, on the table. That's that piece there the, yes. with the hook, yeah. Yeah, that's my hook piece. Mm-hmm. So the next one, it'll be a, uh, I think it'll be fiberglass or carbon fiber. It'll be a smooth shell. It'll be easy to clean. And it'll have a hook. And it'll have a hook on it. It'll, be this, it'll work the same as this one, but it'll fit a lot yeah. better. And then this other, this other device here. Yes, so just a month and a half or so ago, I got approved 
for this uh, bionic hand. So it's a glove that fits over my palm and it has bionic mechanical fingers on it. It has a sensor built into the glove so that when I flex my muscle on my thumb, on my palm, the sensor reads that, triggers the finger to move. It uh, it can be set up with different programs for different grips and gestures. And uh, have, you, have you done it to flip the bird yet? <laughs> it's so interesting that you say that uh-huh. because when I was talking with this guy yep. in the hospital, and that was the technical clinical term he used, grips and gestures, and he said yes. When I use that term, that's the first thing everybody thinks of, and yes, the hand can be programmed to do that. You haven't done it, though? Yes. You have? And so when I was getting fitted, I had to go to Ohio to the factory to get fitted for it, and there was another patient there at the same time from Pennsylvania or wherever he was from, and his injury was that uh, it was an industrial accident, and he still had his thumb and his pinky on his left side, but nothing in between, and so he was being fitted with a glove that had two fingers to assist that, and after he got fitted with his, he was programming his hand to do that at the same time that I was programming mine to do <laughs> now it. Now, I have to ask you uh, to, to demonstrate, I think, Oh, probably. I wish I could. The you reason could. I can't is uh, the hand, it can do these all these different programs, but I can only carry four preloaded at any one time. Oh, I see. And uh, the, I had the slot that I had that program in, Oh, that's rather loud. Yeah, but that's uh, not that's not his hand, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, that is that's a oh, machine the, here in the restaurant. It's the coffee grinder. Yeah, yeah. Oh. and so uh, I, my son, who he's in a band, and uh, he was in a battle of the bands a few weeks ago. So I reset the program to uh, do devil horns. Oh, good. So I can yeah. rock out with my son at the mm-hmm. battle of the bands. Yeah, and I haven't reset it back to the other gesture. Now I have to just have to ask you: Do you do the classic flipping the bird, which is a little more complicated? Well, the, I guess the classic is just one finger. Yeah. The, 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 the sort of, now I've always done the, the, the middle finger. The two fingers resting, you know, at the side. Right. Uh, I can, I'll show, I don't have the hand programmed right now, but I can extend the fingers and show you. Here I am trying to show off and now I can't make it work. It happens yeah. every time. So you can see how the fingers have a little natural curl to yeah, them yeah. Mm-hmm. so that it, when it's closed, it can grab things easier. Mm-hmm. So when I flip the bird, that middle finger's extended, but it's still kind it's of still curved bent. the way yeah. that it mm-hmm. is. That's, just, that's yeah. fully open right there. Yeah, that's got, that comes going to come in handy, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Flipping the bird is an essential. Uh, now, another interesting thing about this hand that uh, uh, Mark has done, he, he had this painted, and tell me tell people about the paint so as part of the hot rod culture you get your hot rod pin striped and uh, a very traditional motif in that is on the deck lid area maybe by where the handle would be they'll the artist will do a little these days you might call it a tramp stamp but uh, you know just a little design right on the back of a deck lid and so I knew from the beginning that I wanted my hand striped and the intent was when I went to the Autorama here when it comes in town each March I think it was March anyway I wanted to take my hand with me leave it with a striper there and get it done but I didn't get the hand done in time so I used the visit to the Autorama to talk with a couple of people I found a guy that I liked his style I liked chatting with him and when I told him that I had a hand that I wanted him to stripe, he said, oh, I've done legs, I've done wheelchairs, I'd be honored to do your hand for you. And uh, in the course of talking with other car guys about it, his name has come up a few times. He's rather well-known in the area. So we arranged for a time, and I met him at his shop. He, I told him I needed it to be these colors because I wanted it to be the colors to honor the car that I lost. But as far as the design goes, I let him come up with the motif. 
so he came up with a sketch. I said, yep, that's great. Let's do it. These are the colors I've got to use. And he did it for me, and I've been thrilled with it. It's getting a little beat up, and the paint's getting chipped up because it's my hand. I use it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to have it striped and decorated. Uh, now, here's the kicker. I mean, there are more. There are a lot more things we could talk about. You know how this has affected your life, and um, you know you have a family, but they're all great. You told me your kids are great. And, oh yeah, they've been fantastic. Yeah, and everybody's been very supportive, and and uh, all of that. But the kicker is, I ask Mark. So, racing. How do you feel about it now? How do you feel about car racing? Absolutely love it. I get asked fairly often if I would do it again, and I say in a second, although my son says in 10 seconds because that would be the goal. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I absolutely, I still love racing. I still love cars. I've got a project car. It's been in the garage for a few years now, and uh, it's really, it's, it's been sitting long enough. Now that the Roadster's gone, I'm not spending money on that anymore. It's time to get the Dodge going. And cruising KSL Classifieds is dangerous. Yeah. I ended up picking up a, several weeks ago, I picked up a car and then I, oh, I found another one. It's actually, uh, I, the intent was to use it as a parts car for the car that I have in the garage, but uh, it may end up being just built into another car. Do, do you anticipate that you will race again? In a second. You think you will? I I will do my very best. I mean, obviously, if, if I feel like I'm a danger to myself or to the others on the track, if I feel like I can't control the car right. at speed or, you know, my vision is a little bit compromised because of the fire, it, I would not do it if I felt like I couldn't do it. But if there's any way that I could get back behind the wheel of a drag car right now, I would do it. Yeah. Mark, it's really a pleasure. Uh, it's a great story. I have I had heard part of it, but not the whole, the whole thing. And um, it's just it's incredible. I think. It, and what makes it incredible and almost unbelievable to me is your is your attitude about it. I keep thinking, oh come on now, he, there's got he's got to have. Look, he's smiling right now, going, no, I'm great, man. I, I think I'm fine. <laughs> I keep thinking there's got to be something going on. That's, I, I yeah. keep thinking, what well, what does your wife think? Yeah. That's because my wife would never let me touch a car again. Well, that's a that's a we did talk about that did, a little bit. Bill and I did talk about this. Actually, I'll say this: uh, my wife at the time was incredibly supportive, and I will be forever grateful that she guided my medical decisions when I couldn't, and she guided our family, mm-hmm. and she took care of everything while I was away. And now that we're splitting, uh, it, this is my current condition has absolutely nothing to do with our decision to split. This probably would have happened, well, definitely would have happened anyway, regardless of the wreck. And she stuck around long enough to see us through this. Way to go, Mark. I was on my way out of this relationship, and then you get in a goddamn He brought wreck. it up. He brought it up. <laughs> I did. Uh, I'm just thinking your wife, I was going to leave him, and now I have to take care of him for a while. <laughs> That's, you know, you're a hilarious guy, too. I well, really appreciate it. thanks for thinking so. I think I'm funny. If other people think so, too, then that's even better. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this, and thanks for sharing your story. Oh, absolutely, Bill. Thank you for your time today. Yeah. That's it for uh, the Let's Go Eat show. Thank you to Dick Clark for producing the show. We hope this came out well. Yeah, uh, hopefully. We'll get it uh, posted. We'll have some photos. Yeah, you took a couple of pictures there, didn't you? We'll get a couple more, too. Yeah, and thanks to The Daily for uh, having us here. Uh, it's a great place, 222 South Main Street in 
downtown Salt Lake. Mark, anything you want to add? Uh, thanks for having me on today. I, it's been a pleasure to uh, sure. share the story, and I'm sure, hopefully it won't be the last time we see each other. No, I, I suspect it won't. Uh, that's it. The Let's Go Eat show. I'm Bill Allred. Um, and uh, remember, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Success is keeping our country safe. Now you want to secure your future. For more than 75 years, University of Maryland Global Campus has helped military service members like you reach your next goal. With 90-plus undergraduate and graduate programs, specializations, and certificates, more than 175 classroom and service locations worldwide, and online and hybrid courses, UMGC is here for you wherever your military service leads you. Personalized advising from knowledgeable military and veteran advisors will help you find the right path, while our military and veteran-specific scholarships make achieving your dreams possible. We'll help you succeed again. Now, active duty military, reserves, and their spouses can qualify for the Military New Graduate Student Savings Program. Eligible students save 30% per credit on most master's degrees and graduate certificates. Learn more at umgc.edu. Certified to operate by CHEV. What's the copay for my eye exam? How much is my lens allowance? What kind of frames can I get? And most importantly, who accepts my vision insurance? Vision insurance can be confusing. Luckily, Pearl Vision can help you make sense of it. They offer a wide selection of state-of-the-art lenses and brand name frames. Plus, they work with all major vision plans, including iMed. Visit pearlvision.com to find your neighborhood eye care center today.